When the church began in Jerusalem in the first century, it very quickly began to be stratified, as, as it were, between those who led and those who followed. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, the New Testament will confirm for us over and over again that God has ordained uh, a leadership structure in the, in the local church that allows churches to be spiritually healthy as those who lead, lead, and, and those who are called to follow, follow. However, that natural, normal, healthy thing began to be perverted by human sin very early on so that you don't have to get very far removed from the first century church before you began to see that something else began to creep in, that the church began to stratify between those who were called to ministry and those who weren't. There began to be thinking that there was something special on those who led the local church that called them to what we would call ministry, and everybody else had uh, normal lives, to put it in the vernacular of my extended family, real jobs. <laughs> and it continued to deepen until by the time you get to 313 B.C. and the adoption of the Christian religion as the religion of Rome, that pretty clearly you have a, a clergy-laity divide, a, a class of people who did ministry, and then a, a class of people who, who weren't called to ministry, who, who really didn't do ministry. And then by the time you get to the medieval ages, it really has become the realm of professional religious people and lay people. So much so that anything that was a part of normal life began to be seen as an encumbrance to really being spiritual. I mean, the, the medieval church acknowledged the fact that there needed to be kings and there needed to be people in commerce and there needed to be people in education and there needed to be husbands and there needed to be fathers. But those things began to be seen as more worldly and those who were truly called to the spiritual life, truly called to ministry, couldn't be bothered by those things. A clergy laity divide. And then came, in 1517, the Protestant Reformation. And in the Protestant Reformation, among other things that took place, was a recovery of the teaching that ministry is not reserved for a special class of religious professionals, that all of us are called to ministry. As a matter of fact, John Calvin, one of the reformers, would say over and over again that all of us, regardless of our vocation, are called to ministry, to make God's name known in the world in which they have been chosen. So you had peasant farmers, and you had cobblers, and you had blacksmiths, all of whom were, were introduced to the idea that ministry wasn't the realm only of the professional, but all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. That was 500 years ago. Let me ask you something, just to be honest. Do you think that that clergy-laity divide has gone away? Of course not. I can give you an example of how it's not gone away in my extended family. If I show up at any meal of the McGinnis clan or the Lynch plan, Derek, who as we know has been called to ministry, <laughs> would you voice our prayer for us? 
But why? Because I'm the religious profession. The clergy, laity, divide. And so, let's ask ourselves a question. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about the truth that is in God's Word that every single person here who claims the name of Jesus has been called to ministry. We're going to begin to figure out what we can do by looking at 2 Timothy. So if you would please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We're in a new series of messages that we began last week, all church year long, the 2019-2020 church year. We are doing an emphasis on being focused, and we're starting out our church year with a focus on faithfulness. What does it mean for me as a follower of Jesus to be personally faithful, and then what does it mean for our church to be a faithful church? Now, it would be easy for us to dismiss what I'm about to read as only being applicable to the religious professional, but let's just pretend for a minute that it might not be. And let's walk through a few verses together from 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. Here we go. For this reason, Paul writes Timothy a personal letter. He's writing to Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. All right, let's deconstruct that verse a little bit by working from the back to the front. He talks about a gift that he's to fan into flame, a gift that is there through the laying on of my hands. Now, we are not to understand that something magical and mystical happened where Paul placed his hands on Timothy and like lightning bolts from his fingers, something of physical transference took place leaving Paul's life going into the life of Timothy. This is a reference to what you and I would call today ordination. Most of us have probably seen ordination where somebody has the, the, uh, the, the leadership of the church, have the hands laid on them, and it is a setting apart of that person for ministry that has been recognized uh, in that person's life. So that's what he's referring to there through the laying on of hands. He's saying you, you have this, this call to, to what we would call today vocational ministry. This was Timothy's, this was Timothy's job, vocational ministry ministry. But then he says this in, in the first few words, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame that gift, for this reason. Now, if you're comfortable doing this, not everybody is, and I get that, why don't you underline the phrase, for this reason, then draw a line back to the beginning of verse 5, circle verse 5, because the reason that Timothy is to fan this gift into flame, is what is talked about in verse 5. And what is talked about in verse 5? In verse 5, it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Understand that the reason that Timothy is being asked to have this gift fanned to a flame is not because he's been called to a special class of person called leadership in ministry. The reason that Timothy is being asked to fan this gift into flame is because he's been genuinely saved. Right? You get that. The motive for him to fan this gift into flame is because Paul is certain, has seen confirmed in his life, that 
Timothy has been genuinely saved. Now, we're just going to put that in our pocket and hang on to that for a while. We'll come back to it. Look at verse 7. He says he's to do this, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is one of the first hints we have in 2 Timothy. I get a personal letter that Timothy, a young pastor in a town called Ephesus, had a bad case of the nerves. He was in a difficult situation. Ephesus was a difficult town in which to minister. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that there came a point in time where the people of Ephesus literally rioted against the gospel and those who proclaimed it, wanting to have them killed, dismembered, thrown away, done away with. So it's a difficult cultural environment in which to proclaim the gospel, but was also difficult in the church because some false teachers had come into the church and were beginning to undermine Timothy, and by undermining Timothy, undermine Paul, and Timothy was frankly ready to do anything else in the world but what he was called to do. And and so Paul says to him, because you've been saved, and because you've been saved, you've been given a gift for ministry, Remember that, 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 that the spirit that saved you is the spirit that will sustain you in doing this ministry. The, the, the Christian life is not started by grace and then carried out in our own strength. The Christian life is started by grace and then sustained by grace, finally delivered to God by grace. This is what he's saying. You're a capacities... Your capacities to fan this gift into a flame are not native to you. it's, It's all the power of God within you. And then he has one of his big therefores in verse 5. It is a trite, but it is also a true, simple technique, principle of Bible study, that when you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself what it is therefore. There you go. It's simple. What is the therefore, therefore, in verse 8? Well, let's read verse 8 first. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy, you've been genuinely saved. You have been equipped for ministry by the power of God. Therefore, don't be ashamed to proclaim the gospel. Don't be afraid to proclaim the gospel. Don't be afraid to share in suffering, if need be, for the sake of the gospel because you have the power of God. And at this point in time, Timothy is probably not going to say it out loud to Paul, but he'd be wondering, well, how do, how do I know that I can trust the power of God to do all this? And you'd say, well, that silly boy. Look, you all do it too. We all do it. We all do it. We all do it when we are given an opportunity to be obedient to Christ and we, we kind of flinch back from it. And we think, I don't know if I want to do that or not. Why do we not want to do that? Because we don't trust the power of God to sustain us in the obedience. All of us do this. And so here's what Paul does. Paul gives Timothy three exhibits three bits of testimony, three bits of proof that you can trust the power of God to carry you through in ministry and in obedience. The first one is in verse 9. Look at this. The power of God, speaking of God himself, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before uh, the ages began. Us to a holy calling. Not a calling to ministry. What's the calling to? It's calling to salvation. It's a calling to salvation. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Here's how you can trust the power of God to sustain you through obedience. You can trust the power of God to sustain you through obedience because it is the power of God that saved you in the first place. None of us have brought anything to the table that merits our salvation. Can I get an amen? Amen. And here's why that's good, good news. Because, and you've heard me say this before, if it were within my capacity to lose my salvation, I would. Before the day's over. I would, but because I brought nothing to the table and I'm saved entirely by the grace of God, I am therefore kept by the grace of God. My salvation is utterly, completely, wholly dependent on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God to save me in spite of myself. And so the first exhibit that you can trust the power of God to sustain you through obedience is that you're saved in the first place. All right? Then... Exhibit 2, look at verse 10. Power of God, again, he's riffing on the power of God, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Second reason that you can trust the power of God to sustain you for obedience in ministry is to look simply at the life of Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross proved sufficient to atone for the sin of the entire world, and not just the entire world at that moment, but the entire world before Christ walked the earth, the entire world after Christ walked the earth. All of sin, all of it in human history, and folks, we ain't done yet, was atoned for by the death of Christ. That's powerful. And then to prove that that death was sufficient to satisfy the penalty against us for our sin, God raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying here, here's how I know that you can trust the power of God to carry you through being obedient and fulfilling your ministry. It is because Christ died for our sins and he rose again. Exhibit two. And then exhibit three, far, far more personal perhaps. Look at verse 11. Speaking of the gospel, Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. The final exhibit that God's power can sustain you to be obedient in ministry, Paul is saying, is me. Think through, Timothy, what you know I've endured. Think through what I have been through. Think of the weakness that you have seen in me. The, 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 the same fear at times that you yourself are experiencing. Do you think I fought through that just because I'm better than you? No. I was able to get through that by the same thing that will get you through it. I was able to get through it by the power of God. All right, so now let's go back and kind of do the... Uh, the Derek Standard version of what I've just read here it would go something like this. For this reason, Paul is writing, for this reason, because you have been genuinely saved, Timothy, fan the gifts that God has given you in leading the church into flame because God is a God who grants us power and not fear. 
Therefore, stand firm in your ministry in the power of God, which you know can sustain you because it saved you, was put on full display in the life of Christ, and because you've seen it at work up close in my life. My life, Paul. Now, I began all of this by talking about how the church began to sprint toward a clergy-laity divide, a creation of a special class of persons that we would call religious professionals, upon whom was the responsibility to do ministry, and then the rest of us could just, you know, do whatever we kind of felt like we wanted to do. This passage of Scripture begins to undermine all of that. You say, I don't see how. It still seems to me like it's words to a professional. Well, the words that that undermine all of that are the first words we read. I ask you to underline, for this reason. He's not saying, Timothy, because you're a minister of the gospel, vocationally, you're supposed to do these things. He's saying, Timothy, because you're saved, you're supposed to do these things. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's a little thin for me. Can Can you show me somewhere else in Scripture where it would make it more clear that I actually, just normal old me, am called to ministry? Well, I'm glad you asked. Why don't you hang on to 2 Timothy. Go to Romans chapter 12. The first three verses of Romans chapter 12 are an eloquent description of the sacrifice that is called for in the lives of every single one of us who would follow Jesus. And then beginning in verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's what was going on. We're beginning to see that tension began to show up of those who were special in ministry, those who had more visible and more more upfront responsibility in the ministry, people who were saying, well, I wish that I could do what Paul does. I wish I could speak to the church. Why can't I speak to the church? I, I wish that I had that kind of visibility. Why can't I have that kind of visibility? Or those who were religious professionals thinking, I really am quite something, you know, because I'm, I'm a religious professional. Paul is just saying, you really ought not to think that way. Because God has equipped all of us, assigned all of us, do you get that? All of us a task in ministry. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, through though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He's beginning to talk about this kind of holistic approach to ministry where everyone is serving their function. Yes, there may be someone who's more visible and has a more prominent role in a visible sense in, in the ministry of the local church, but all of it's needed. All of, it, all of the body is needed. And he goes on to say this in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, we're, we're all... We're all differently gifted, but we do all have gifts. Let us use them, he says. You're called to ministry, so do it. That's what Paul is saying. Every single person here who claims the name of Jesus Christ has been called to ministry in the local church, equipped by the same grace that saved you to do ministry 
in the local church. So with that context, let me spend about two minutes helping you fill in your blanks, and then we'll, we'll talk about this. If you're, if you're tracking, keeping notes, here's the two main principles to draw from 2 Timothy and then broader scriptures in context. The experience of genuine faith ignites your call. The experience of genuine faith ignites your call. How do I know that I'm called to ministry? Because I've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how you know. The only question you should have about whether or not you're called to ministry is have I been saved or not? Have I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ or not? After that question is settled, then you understand that you have been called to minister. The experience of genuine faith ignites your call. And then the second main principle, the experience of genuine faith empowers your call. So how do I know that I've been equipped and empowered to do ministry? Because you've been saved. The, the, the question as to whether or not you've been called is settled if you've been saved. And the question as to whether or not you've been equipped to do ministry is settled if you have been saved. So let's let all of this set heavy on our hearts for just a minute. I know how easy it is to hear the words, you know, and let's just face it, I'm a preacher, I sell words in bulk, all right? And I know how easy it is to hear the words, but I want you to drill into those two principles, basically saying, we're called to ministry because we've been saved and we've been equipped to minister because we've been saved. Let that set heavy. Because if you do, it may just prove to be the most radical undoing of the paradigm by which you have operated in life that you have ever encountered. Because out here in the suburbs, we still have a very clear clergy laity divide. And what we have taught ourselves out here in the suburbs, and frankly in the wealthy West, is that as members of a church, our job is to consume the work of the religious professionals. We, we hire people to do ministry, and then we do job performance reviews on them. And that job performance review is based on whether I will be back next week or not. Am I receiving what I'm paying for? The clergy-laity divide exists out here in the world. And, and let me therefore begin to challenge you with some thinking. The average American worker change, changes jobs upwards of 10 times in their vocational life. They go to a place, man, I'm really fulfilled, and this feels great, and then it sours, and then you move on. Man, this feels great, and it sours, and then you move on. Sometimes in vocational life, you take a new job because you need to be stretched, and then you take another job because you need to be stretched. But I think that sometimes those job changes are because we are on a relentless pursuit for our life to matter, and we're thinking that our vocation, how we pay our bills, will somehow feed into our life mattering. Maybe, 
Maybe the reason that you're swapping jobs all the time is because you are trying to gain from your vocation what God meant for you to experience in the church, in ministry. And there are a few people in here that are like me. You're at midlife. And what happens at midlife is you begin to think, is this, is this important? Does this matter? And so you look back at the bulk of your vocational career and you think, well, what have I done that's mattered? You get to retirement. And you've got your resources and all that you've saved for, but, but you kind of have a gnawing suspicion that it's really been kind of a waste of life. There's nothing that matters and there's nothing that counts up to this point. Now, I am not impugning vocation. We're, 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 built, we're, we're built to work. We find fulfillment, not in kicking back and taking it easy, but we're, we're built to work. And some of you have been placed by God and given gifts to, to be successful in finance and to be successful in engineering and to be successful in IT. I'm not faulting the thing. I'm talking about how you've thought about the thing. That's what I'm talking about. That thing is meant to be how you pay your bills. My thing is vocational ministry. My bills are paid because a church supports me financially. Your thing may be your job. But all of us, Romans 12, are called to ministry and are gifted and equipped by God to do just that. People go, well, man... That is right. That is, that is absolutely right. But I don't know what to do because I don't know how I'm gifted. I need to know how I'm gifted. So, so I need to buy one more service from the religious professionals. I need you to give me a spiritual gift inventory. And let me just say something to you. This is the Derek Lynch assessment of spiritual gift inventory. They are a bunch of hooey. I, unless, unless something radically changes in me or the elders say to me, you'll do it or else, we will not give spiritual gift inventories at Blue Valley Baptist Church. Because the church existed for 2,000 years without us having a spiritual gift inventory. And what has happened in the Western world where the focus is always on ourselves is that it became just another way for us to kind of find out more about the real us. So the focus began being discovering who I am and not doing ministry. Here's how people figured out how they were gifted prior to 1975. They did stuff. That's how they found out. They did stuff. This preacher would come up and he'd say, we need help doing X. And they'd think, well, yeah then I'll, I'll do that thing. And then if you did that thing not very well, somebody would come to you and say, that's really not your thing. <laughs> and you'd say, okay, I'll do the next thing that comes along. That's how people found out. So here's the thing. If you hear of a need 
at Blue Valley Baptist Church, the question as a follower of Jesus called to minister that you should be asking is not, why would I do that? But instead, why would I not do that? Why, why would I not do that? This is what God calls us and equips us to do, to find out how we can advance the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God through the local church. And every single one of us, because we've been saved, have been called. And every single one of us, because we've been saved, have been equipped. And here's one of the things that we're really going to start leaning in awfully hard on. If this church approves the proposed mission, vision, and values that are before the church by the elders on November 24th, then you're going to have us saying to you over and over and over again, some of you have a job that allows you to earn a living doing whatever it is. But you could do that in Burwell, Nebraska and be a, a co-vocational, someone who makes their living doing this, but whose real passion is, is being the pastor of that church. Now, actually, Burwell is where you've never heard of. It's one of the largest churches in Nebraska. It's in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where those people come from. But um, <laughs> it, it, people to the tune of about 300 are there in worship at Burwell. A friend of mine, Joel Wentworth, just went to be the pastor. But Joel's a perfect example. Uh, Joel did janitor work and uh, just kind of odd jobs that he could pick up so that up until he just went to Burwell, he could pastor two churches. Last August, a year ago this past August, I rode with him one day just to see what he did. I got in his van that would barely start, and we rode, drove almost 200 miles so he could pastor two churches. This is what God is calling us to. There are going to be people that God will call out of Blue Valley Baptist Church to full-time vocational ministry. He's done it, and he will continue to do it. But the gospel in the 21st century is continually going to be carried on the back of people who can make their living in other ways because the churches that need to be established will not be able to afford a pastor, and many of the churches that have been established could never afford a pastor. And God... I'm convinced is going to call leaders for some of those churches out of this congregation. So let me just say to you, not going to be a safe place to go to church. <laughs> if we decide to do this, it's not going to be a safe way to go to church. But I'll tell you what you will be able to look forward to. You'll be able to look forward to days growing short in your life knowing you haven't wasted it. And, and as someone who has fewer days left than what I've spent, unless I live to be 106 years old, that becomes very important. And I want to be able check out of here knowing I haven't wasted my life. You, all of us, are called 
to ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. I want you now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed to just reflect on what the Lord has been saying to you through his word not through me but through his word this morning has he begun to connect some dots for you to begin thinking about your life in terms of ministry of not being a consumer of the work of religious professionals, but, but of, of being in ministry. Has he given you a capacity to make a living doing one thing, but a passion to lead a church as your call? Has he called you to be faithful right here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. But awakened in you an understanding that you could teach Sunday school. You could serve in one of our ministries. Has he awakened in you a more fundamental primary calling? Caused you to realize that the outpost for the gospel in your neighborhoods, not Blue Valley Baptist Church, it's your house. That the outpost for the gospel at your work is not Blue Valley Baptist Church, it's you. I hope he's done that. And I hope he continues to do it in my life. Because the outpost for the gospel on Sagamore Road where I live, it's not Blue Valley Baptist Church. It's Derek and Julie Lynch. Build those relationships. Make Jesus known. Call people to the Jesus we've found. All of us have been called to ministry. How's God connecting those dots for you today? 